traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-29-193 Though Julia was born under Marcus Aurelius, Commodus was the only Roman emperor she'd ever really known. And considering he was responsible for her cousin's murder, she probably shed few tears over his death. Her father probably told her enough about Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius to realize that Roman emperors weren't required to be insane. But the elevation of someone she knew and thought well of was a thing Julian never could have predicted. Publius Helvius Pertinax had had an interesting rise. First and foremost, as already mentioned, he was the first Roman emperor born to a freedman. He'd also had a long career as a grammar teacher before joining the military at the age of 34. A critical early patron was Claudius Pompeianus, the guy Faustina had hated enough to start a civil war. A strong turn as Pompeianus's military aide in the Northern Wars had earned Pertinax's promotion to the Roman Senate. In 175, the year Avidius Cassius took Faustina's bait, Pertinax was elected Suffolk Consul. His elevation ignited a firestorm among Roman conservatives, who began openly attacking both his lineage and qualifications. Stepping in as his chief defender was the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who made a speech praising Pertinax and arguing that his consulship was well-deserved. After accompanying Marcus to the east and holding important governorships in Upper Moesia, Lower Moesia, and Dacia, Pertinax was made governor of Syria in 180, the same year Marcus died. Commodus swept into power with a very new broom, and before long both Claudius Pompeianus and his protege Pertinax were in imperial disfavor, with Pertinax removed as Syrian governor. In the process, Pertinax's subordinate, Septimius Severus, also took a political hit. It took the fall of one of Commodus's favorites, the Praetorian prefect Perennis, to create the conditions for Pertinax and Severus to restart their careers. 
The year after Perennis died, 186, Severus was made governor of Lugdunensian Gaul, while Pertinax became governor of Britannia. Pertinax's tenure in the West was pretty turbulent, including an attempted lynching by his own men, and he gained a reputation as a strict disciplinarian. After a subsequent stint as African proconsul, Pertinax was made city prefect of Rome, where he'd helped the overthrow of Commodus's new favorite, Cleander. After that, Pertinax had become a confidant of the new Praetorian prefect, Latus, and soon held a second consulship alongside Commodus. So, all things considered, his elevation to Roman emperor, by Latus and its Praetorians, was just the latest twist in an already eventful career. Julia knew that Severus would get the news in days, either from official correspondence or his own contacts in Rome. But knowing that Commodus had previously spread false rumors as a loyalty test, Julia may have written him to confirm both Commodus's death and Pertinax's elevation. To be honest, we don't really know what Severus knew, what he suspected, or what he told Julia. The fact that Pertinax was his old commander, and the prefect Latus was a fellow North African, would have certainly made him sympathetic but it didn't prove that Severus was part of any plot. Still, there was plenty to be suspicious about. As just one glaring example, after a decade spent in retirement, Claudius Pompeianus had shown up in Rome the same night as Commodus's death. In a meeting with his old patron, Pertinax had offered to step aside and give Pompeianus the throne. But since Pertinax had already been hailed as Imperator, Pompeianus graciously declined and gave his old protege his full backing. All of which sounds a little staged, even without the suspicious timing. Even stranger, no one seemed particularly troubled about exactly how the superfit 31-year-old Commodus had died. In general, Romans appeared far more concerned about whether his body could be disinterred from its place of rest so it could be torn limb from limb. Swept up in the mood, and despite their skepticism, the Senate ratified Pertinax's elevation and granted him all the usual honorifics. They also offered to name his wife as Augusta and his son as Caesar, but oddly, Pertinax refused. The emperor explained that he wanted his son to be raised in more humble circumstances. But the move raised doubts about his real intentions. Was he founding a new dynasty, or did he think of himself as a placeholder, and if so, for who? In other areas, Pertinax was, thankfully, more direct. To restore the desolated Roman treasury, Pertinax held a fire sale of all Commodus's luxury goods. Everything from carriages and costumes to concubines and entertainers. So, you know, pick up your deep discount jugglers and secondhand lion skins while you can. He also increased the silver content of Roman coinage and took measures to safeguard Rome's corn supply. Only a few weeks in, while Pertinax was away in Ostia, there was an attempted coup by the consul Quintus Socius Falco. Pertinax had rushed back to Rome, nipped it in the bud, and instantly pardoned Falco, 
stating that under his regime, no senator would be put to death, even for a just cause. Which I guess could be seen as either magnanimous or naive. Either way, the stable transition most Romans were hoping for still seemed very much a work in progress. Though they were no longer hostages, it was decided for the time being that Julia and the children would remain in Rome. To be honest, after living in some of the great cities of the Western Empire, Carnuntum would have been a serious downgrade. As Severus likely described it, the Upper Pannonian capital was basically a glorified military camp. Its most notable feature was a huge gladiator school, or ludus, just outside the city walls. By contrast, living in the capital, Julia had access to comforts, amenities, and her sister's family in nearby Ostia. On March 28, 193, Julia was shocked to learn that Pertinax was dead. Eighty-seven days into his reign, a revolt by the Praetorians had led to his murder, and the mounting of his head on a pike. Even more repulsive, if that's possible, the Praetorians then had the audacity to auction off the empire to the highest bidder. The winner, at 25,000 sesterces per guardsman, was Pertinax's one-time fellow consul Didius Julianus or rather the new Emperor Julianus of Rome. While the act made Julianus into a historic embarrassment, he actually had a pretty good claim. The former general, governor, consul, and friend of Pertinax was probably the most experienced candidate available, excepting, of course, the 68-year-old and perpetually reluctant Claudius Pompeianus. Julia likely realized that Pertinax's death might be followed by a purge of his supporters. In fact, Pertinax's refusal to grant his wife and son royal titles would probably end up saving their lives. Though she likely penned an urgent letter to Severus reporting the news, it may have been outraced by his other Roman contacts. Historian Anthony Burley speculates that Severus might have learned of Pertinax's death as early as April 1st. The perceived shakiness of Pertinax's rule, particularly after Falco's coup attempt, may have led Severus to lay a bit of groundwork. But before he could take any concrete steps, he had one overriding concern. Whoever came to Severus's apartments in Rome must have been well known to the family. The armed men he brought became an effective bodyguard, as Julia and the children were taken to waiting mounts. In force, and with all due speed, Severus's family left the capital behind to make their way toward Upper Pannonia. And it was probably in a secure location somewhere en route that Julia learned that her husband had laid claim to the Roman Empire. In his proclamation of April 9th, Severus cast himself as avenger of the murdered Pertinax. He even renamed himself Imperator Caesar Lucius Septimius Severus Pertinax Augustus. Julia knew that Severus controlled three provincial legions, and likely had the loyalty of the two in Lower Moesia serving under his brother Geta. 
What she didn't know at the time was that Severus had also secured the loyalty of the governors and legates of Lower Pannonia and Upper Moesia, along with Raetia, Noricum, and Dacia. All in all, a total of sixteen legions with auxiliaries. I imagine Julia receiving the news with pride and satisfaction. Let's recall she was the great-niece of a former king, daughter of a high priest, and descendant of both Emocene and Mauritanian royalty. In fact, she was even the distant heir of the legendary Queen Cleopatra. That's not the type of lineage that breeds an excess of humility. And, of course, her horoscope guaranteed a royal future. She likely expected any man she married to keep up his end of the bargain. His family's safe arrival in Carnuntum allowed Severus to concentrate on winning the Roman throne. He likely felt pretty secure in his ability to defeat Julianus. But, unfortunately, Julianus was the least of his problems. As mentioned last episode, when the prefect Latus was elevating fellow Africans to power, one of the more prominent was Clodius Albinus. Albinus was a native of Hadrumatum, a Phoenician city even older than Carthage. He'd first gained notoriety back in 175, when he'd kept the legions of Bithynia from going over to Avidius Cassius. He was also a staunch Republican, and thought the Senate should have more say in Roman affairs. At around the same time as Severus, early April 193, Albinus had been hailed as Imperator in Britannia. And while Severus may not have considered him an immediate threat, he was, at the very least, a significant distraction. In response, Severus drafted a letter promising to make Albinus his heir if he made no hostile moves. Acknowledging Severus's superior position, Albinus accepted, and renamed himself Decimus Clodius Septimius Albinus Caesar. The far bigger problem was out in the east, where the Syrian governor Pisenius Niger had also been hailed as emperor. Niger's a bit more of a black box than Albinus, and seems to have been elevated by Commodus precisely because he was non-controversial. But of course it's the quiet ones you have to keep an eye on, and Niger was soon billing himself as the new Alexander. Like Vespasian and Avidius Cassius, Niger quickly gained the loyalty of Syria, Egypt, and the other eastern provinces. Niger was also popular in Rome. In fact, when riots broke out over Julianus's purchase of the empire, the man the plebs called on to replace him wasn't Severus, but Niger. Not playing favorites, Julianus sent imperial assassins to eliminate both rivals. Unfortunately for him, neither would be successful. In Carnuntum, April and May of 193 were consumed with preparations for the march on Rome. For Julia Domna, it must have been a time of both exhilaration and fear. On the one hand, her husband was finally staking claim to their joint destiny. On the other, her sister's family were still subjects of Julianus in Rome, while her father and other relatives were subjects of Niger in Syria. If her horoscope was wrong, 
and Severus failed, her entire family might be executed for treason. At the very least, her two young sons would certainly be killed. In May, Severus started moving toward Rome, as Julianus prepared an ad hoc defense. Aside from pressing some passing sailors and rambunctious war elephants into temporary service, the emperor seemed more concerned with avoiding Pertinax's fate. For Julianus, this meant killing the Praetorian prefect Latus and securing the palace against revenge attacks by the Praetorian guard. Once it became clear that he had no plan for actually defending the city, the emperor's allies began deserting him in droves. As Severus passed Ravenna, Julianus pivoted from declaring him an enemy of Rome to offering him joint rule of the empire. In short, things were just getting ridiculous and pathetic. As the ultimate proof, Julianus hauled out Claudius Pompeianus and offered him the empire for like the twentieth time. Pompeianus fell back on his standard response, that he was too old and his eyesight was too poor. But I don't know, I think he was seeing things just fine. Even at a distance, Severus was already issuing orders, and the Senate had little choice but to obey. In one momentous session, they declared Severus emperor, Pertinax deified, and Julianus put to death. On June the 1st, 193, Julianus was killed by some random soldier in the palace, a suitable end for his 66-day embarrassment of a reign. When a delegation from the Senate met with Severus at his camp, some 50 miles north of Rome, they finally got a real sense of just who they were dealing with. Surrounded by a hand-picked bodyguard of 600 men, who, as Cassius Dio notes, never removed their armor, Severus had the delegation search for weapons and met them with a gladius on his hip. No matter what he was becoming, Severus had always been, first and foremost, a soldier. And while he easily won over the senators, with bribes and special privileges, he knew that his main challenge was a military one. For nearly two centuries, the Praetorian Guard had remained a force to be reckoned with by anyone coveting the rule of Roman Emperor. Severus knew they'd have to be dealt with, and his plan for doing so had a Hannibalic flair. First, he appointed two new Praetorian prefects absolutely loyal to him alone. Severus then ordered all the guardsmen to attend him unarmed outside the walls of their camp, to swear him loyalty as their new emperor. Likely gauging that a career military man wouldn't be too stingy with the donatives, the guardsmen did as they were told, and gathered around Severus on his raised tribunal. What they got, in lieu of gold, was a severe tongue-lashing, and a denunciation of all their recent crimes. Severus then ordered the guardsmen to strip off their fancy uniforms and make with all due speed for the hundredth milestone outside the city. Anyone thinking about resisting soon became aware of the large body of armed soldiers now encircling their assembly. Though they couldn't have known it, Severus had also sent additional men to occupy the Praetorian camp. 
Severus, in short, had thought of everything, and with one bold stroke, the power of the Praetorian Guard was broken. Well, the old Praetorian Guard. As a man partial to bodyguards, Severus saw the value of the institution, provided it was filled with provincial soldiers absolutely loyal to him alone. Which is exactly how the new, even larger, Praetorian Guard was reconstituted within the month. Similarly, while Severus traded his armor for civilian clothes to enter the gates of Rome, he saw no reason to shed his fully armed legions. Though she would have taken no inappropriate role, Julia Domna wouldn't have missed this day for the world. According to Cassius Dio, the capital was a riot of flowers, laurels, brightly colored fabrics, brightly burning torches, and the smoke from burning incense, with the population dressed in celebratory white. As they watched Severus and his soldiers pass, Dio notes that the Roman people gave utterance to many hopeful expressions. You know, I just bet they did. It was extremely rare for Roman legionaries to enter the capital fully armed, for any reason other than a triumph. The last time it had happened was under Vitellius and Vespasian, and even then Vespasian did his best to maintain plausible deniability. Such a blatant display was something very new, and, despite outward appearances, very ominous. Severus fulfilled his role as avenger of Pertinax by giving the dead emperor an elaborate funeral. And I do mean elaborate. Dio goes on for pages and pages. In the end, Pertinax's body was placed in a gilded chariot atop a massive funeral pyre, which was then set alight by the two consuls. Severus also had a shrine constructed over Pertinax's tomb known as a harrowum the type once used for ancient Greek heroes. Once the funeral was complete, Severus turned his attention to his remaining rival, Pisenius Niger. Since being hailed as imperator, Niger had been firming up control over Egypt and Syria and trying to gain allies in Anatolia. His biggest coup was enlisting Elias Aemilianus, the esteemed proconsul of Asia, who'd occupied Byzantium in Niger's name. In response, Severus had the children of Niger and Aemilianus seized and held hostage in Rome. Even as he prepared for war, Severus started putting his stamp on the capital. He installed a former colleague as city prefect, a critical post if he was going east and filled the Senate with men loyal to the new regime. Foremost among these was Julius' brother-in-law, the former procurator of Vetus Alexianus. It's also around this time that the 13-year-old daughters of Alexianus and Julia Mesa were likely married off. Bassiana married Sextus Varius Marcellus, a Roman citizen of equestrian rank from the Syrian city of Apamea. Her older sister Mamaya married an ex-consul, about whom we have zero details. But either way, I have an updated family tree posted on the Ancient World website. Even as Julia's extended family settled into Rome, Severus installed his own friends and relatives into positions of authority. 
Among them was Severus's friend and cousin, Gaius Fulvius Plautianus, who became Severus's military aide. And we'll be talking much more about Plautianus down the road. Severus also did whatever he could to secure Rome's grain supply. While Egypt was key, other African provinces were also important. Severus dispatched an additional legion to Africa to block any aggressive moves by Niger and also make sure his home city was well defended. For the 23-year-old Julia Domna, the year's changes had been seismic. In the span of a few months, she'd gone from hostage of Commodus to presumptive Roman empress. Moving her family into the vast palace complex, the same one that had housed both Pertinax and Julianus, must have been both gratifying and surreal. But the most surreal moment likely came soon after, the first time she saw her own image on a Roman coin. Along with coins featuring Severus and his presumed successor Clodius Albinus, another set of coins depicted the young Julia Domna. Their reverse showed Venus Victrix, the goddess who'd helped Julius Caesar win his own civil war. It was a hopeful invocation in a year with three dead emperors and still much more work to be done. <laughs> ¶¶ 